Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. We are a new magazine, website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to history and historical fiction. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with best-selling and acclaimed historians and novelists talking about great events and people of history. Head over to our website where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. We also have annual subscriptions to our magazine at the shockingly low price of $9.99 in both pounds and dollars, which of course you can gift to friends and family. Anyway, on with the podcast. Please do subscribe if you enjoy it and give us a great rating if you can. So Rob, you talked about the Indian army uh, and how partition was affected by it and how important it was socially and, and politically. What about the Indian Army uh, militarily during the war against the Japanese? The 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 Raj based the Raj the, the army of 1939, which was a product of an, a Raj imperative, um, could not have uh, gained the support of all the political parties and of Indians generally, had it not been for the fact that it was a new army. And, and it had proven itself. It, it was not just, I'm not just talking about uh, the army being successful uh, in civic terms. It was a dramatically successful army against the Japanese. And uh, Bill Slim, General Bill Slim, wrote his memoirs in 1956, and he called it From Defeat to Victory. And in, a, in that title, he encapsulates the entire um, pendulum of, of um of events in the Far East at the time. And there was profound defeat, profound military defeat, but not profound political defeat. The Raj didn't fall as a consequence. Very, very large numbers of young Indians started to join up without much urging, actually. Um, there weren't the large uh, recruitment drives that were undertaking the parts of Africa, for instance. Um, there, there are many, many examples of uh, Indians, young Indians wanting to join the army for lots of reasons, but and it, the the army was being opened up to large numbers of new recruits, and there were there were long waiting lists, and that that was quite an extraordinary uh, experience. This was India coming together, and there are some very good journalists uh, at the time publishing things about this new spirit of enterprise by Indians for India, not joining to defend the Raj, not joining to defend the past but joining to protect the future and to create something new for themselves. And I think that was one of the, really was one of the profound discoveries I came across, speaking to Indians and reading a lot of the um, contemporary literature, a lot of newspaper articles and some, uh, some very good Indian writing from 1944-45, saying precisely that. We've forgotten it now. So I'm not saying it for the first time. It's, it's not new in that sense, but it, it, it has been resurrected by me. And I think it's an important part of the debate about uh, about history and it's it's important because it's, it's really important to give indians their voice and this is one of the things that irritates me slightly not, not just about this country we're not very good at it here but india has largely closed off the voice of the pre-1947 indian army and the the colonial experience because they regard it as being precisely that as, as a colonial uh, colonial history. There is a very widespread view uh, in India that anything that happened before 1947 
wasn't really Indian history because it was in different India. It was an India with 30, 35% Muslim population, which is that problem's now been exported largely to Pakistan, apart from Kashmir, of course. Um, uh, and of course it was British. So it's a very easy excuse to make. And, and there is a particular brand of Hindu nationalist, very, very noisy in India that actually presses that argument. Uh, I just don't believe it. I don't, do not see that for, for, for one moment because I don't believe the evidence is there. And history is much more nuanced as I've described. And, um, and I think in this country, our experience of the Far East, uh, because India has, was set adrift from the empire in 1947, although part of the Commonwealth, you know, we, when, when we think about the war in the Far East, we've thought, of, we've thought perhaps about the Burma Star Association, we've thought about the British uh, veterans of the campaign. And as, as time has gone by, we've just forgotten actually that most of the 14th Army was Indian. It was an Indian war. Uh, and it was dramatically successful against the Japanese. I just make this point about the Japanese, really interesting. Whereas Bill Slim quite succinctly and, and accurately recognized that this was a transformation of the Indian, the British armies in the Far East. The army that did not transform itself was the Japanese. And it was really quite a shock to me. I've written a book about this before. Um, and coming back to it again, to understand why the Japanese really sat on their laurels uh, in 1943 in Burma, they didn't really understand the British. They thought they did. They thought that 1942 was basically it. Uh, Mutaguchi Renya, the commander of the Japanese 15th Army, which launched the invasion of uh, India in 1944, regarded the British to be weaker than the Chinese. Well, the troops they'd come across hadn't been organized. Uh, they didn't believe in the same sort of martial virtues. The Japanese had this, had this martial concept called Bushido, uh, which is entirely alien to European uh, and North American armies, uh, which basically says that your honor as a human being is wrapped up in your, not just your obedience to the emperor and the army, but your willingness to die for the emperor and, your, and the army. Uh, and that, that concept is completely alien in the, in the Christian, post-Christian world because you know, if you run out of ammunition on the battlefield and you're clearly overwhelmed by the enemy, there is no point committing suicide because suicide's a crime. You know, you, the, the concept of harikari, seppuku, this whole idea of, of um, uh, emperor worship through Bushido is, is entirely alien. Uh, the problem with the Japanese is they didn't interrogate the, the, what was happening uh, in the British and the Indian armies in 1943-44. And when they invaded India in 1944 into Manipur and Assam, they did so on the basis of some very, very flawed assumptions. And by that time, the Indian army and the British army in the Far East had transformed themselves. And there's a, a quite a bit, a big bit in the middle of the book, which where, where I talk about the transformation of the army, how the army recruited, how the army trained, how it worked together, how it dealt with the problems of terrain and um, climate and um, the long lines of communication, how it dealt with issues of food and, um, and, and also how it dealt with the tactical problems of fighting the Japanese in jungle. What, what, what were the solutions that they worked through and, and found? And the transformation was quite remarkable, but it was done in a belt and braces way. It was done by, uh, because of the fact that large numbers of young Indian men joined up and they were prepared to fight, and they were prepared to sacrifice their lives in this cause. And that's another thing that, you know, 
uh, modern historians or people looking at this campaign need to consider? Why was it that young Indians were prepared to die for this cause? Well, the, the very simple answer is they were defending India. And I think it's, that's it's the simplest um, answer to what can be quite a convoluted ideological discussion. I think we just should leave the ideology out of it. And um, that's quite a remarkable story in and of itself, the transformation of the Indian army. And, and I have to pay a debt, um, a, a debt of gratitude here to two um, of my colleagues who have done some amazing work in this field over the years, Professor Ray Callahan in the States and um, Professor Dan Marson, who's now also in the States, uh, have both done an enormous amount of really good work to explain why it was that the Indian Army was rebuilt. Um, Dan Marson's book is called Phoenix from the Ashes, and both Dan and um, Ray have collaborated in the book on the transformation of the Indian Army in 1945. And I think that's, uh, that's a really telling story. And yet when I talk to some of my other colleagues who are writing history, people like James Holland and James and um, John Buckley, it's very interesting in the, to, to see the comparisons that exist uh, between Northwest Europe and India. In, Imphal and Kahima, the big battles in Eastern India, 1944, the army that fought the Japanese was largely a new one. Young recruits who had only been in the army for less than a year, but had spent the last 11 months training, were now fighting the Japanese and making a very, very good call of it. Um, and exactly the same thing happened to the British army uh, and the Canadians to a lesser extent in Northwest Europe, the, the British army that fought through the 21st Army Group in Northwest Europe were young men. They were uh, 16 when the war started and they joined up in 1942 and 43. They trained throughout 1943 and they were they went into battle uh, for the first time in 1944. It's quite extraordinary. You know, the, 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 the very successful um, armies that we saw in 1944 and 1945 in Europe were exactly the same, built on the same model, actually, as the, the armies that were successful in 1944 um, and 45 in the Far East. The very interesting question that that raises in my mind is, well, what's the point of these professional armies that get defeated in the early few years of the war and then actually fail miserably thereafter? It's a very unfair point to make because actually all the commanders of the armies, the successful armies in 44 and 45, were, of course, employed in senior positions in the early years of the war they effectively learned very quickly. And we mustn't ever forget the point also, and this is really important to make, one of the great, one of the reasons for the great success of the Indian and British armies against the Japanese was the economic mobilization of India. So Robert, that's a very interesting point. What was India like as a, as a uh, industrialized nation? Obviously you have an America, which is heavily industrialized, you know, that huge power, but what, what about India? India was not a manufacturing um, base before the war. Most of its manufactured goods were um, made in either the United States or the United Kingdom. And that had to be transformed in 1943-44 uh, in order to be able to sustain this massive army that was fighting the Japanese. And large numbers of airfields needed to be built. Um, the, the, the industrial and economic effort that went into defeating the Japanese was absolutely massive. And there's some very good historians out there, Phillips O'Brien and, and a number of others, uh, re repeatedly make this point, actually, and we, we mustn't forget it, that wars aren't won by good soldiers on their own. War wars are won by the mobilization of society. And James Holland's made this point uh, in his War in the West and in other places, which 
is that actually the economic and industrial potential and material and personnel potential of the empire was enormous in 1939. Uh, and, you know, with a good wind, there was no reason to assume that the, the British and their, their, the Commonwealth sort of imperial allies wouldn't win against the Germans and against the Japanese. And I think he's right. The trick was to mobilize those resources in an efficient way uh, to win the war whilst ensuring that you won the immediate battles. And that's the problem in the, the, the whole of the Second World War um, about 1941, 42 and 43. How do you actually hold the, uh, the Japanese and the, and the Germans at bay whilst you are preparing your armies and your air forces and your navy and, and all the, the, the weapons of war to be successful in due course? In the Far East, the Japanese gave India and Britain the opportunity because they, uh, they gave them time uh, by, by not invading in 1943, not invading India in 1943, by not really doing anything in Burma in 1943, they allowed the Allies time to rearm and re-equip. And this is another general point that sort of really struck home in the writing of this book, Ollie, which is that um, the Japanese invaded in 1941 with a very good plan and it was extremely well executed and dramatically successful but i don't think a single drop of ink was spilled anywhere in tokyo to describe how success would be made good and how it would continue into the future no one actually sat down and said right once we've got burma this is how we're going to run it this is how we're going to defend it this is what we're going to do this is what we're going to do to make sure that no one attacks it from india or whatever no one the, the problem with the, the militaristic society that Japan was burdened with was that it was a bunch, it was occupied by a bunch of guys, you know, all guys, who knew how to execute a lightning attack, but who weren't able then to do anything subsequent to that and, and, and run, run the country and, and so on and so forth. And that was the problem. I mean, it was a, it was a one-shot wonder. And I mean, I've heard people say, well, of course, from midway onwards, which is uh, you know, early 1942, the Japanese had lost the war. Yes, I mean, you can say that with hindsight. And, and it's true that it was a significant turning point. In fact, I'd say Guadalcanal was a significant turning point. But actually, the war still had to be fought. And, and the, the Japanese, you know, we, we can overdo this sense that the Japanese were brilliant fighters, brilliant jungle fighters, well organized, all the rest of it. The one thing, I mean, I, I've, I've long moved away from, from that idea. They, they weren't at all. The one thing the Japanese were very good at was dying. And they died in very, very large numbers, um, in part, and many parts, because they uh, of the incompetence of their commanders. And that's another thing that sort of struck me actually quite strongly during the writing of this book. The numbers Japanese. are extraordinary that you laid out. I mean, it's almost 10 to 1. I'm, I'm probably getting that yes, a little bit wrong. Yes, but it's... yes. Yeah, I mean, I just give you a couple of examples, not a lot of numbers, but in terms of um, ideas, I mentioned earlier this idea of Bushido. Well, the idea of the samurai, you know, Bushido is the sort of semi-religious code that sits behind the samurai. If you're a samurai, you're you know, a Japanese soldier. There's an idea that the only honorable way for a Japanese officer to fight the enemy is with a, a katana, a, Jap a sword. So Japanese officers weren't allowed to go in with a rifle or a submachine gun or, a, or anything like that. They had to fight with a sword. There was no, no Japanese officer would ever conceive of going to battle without fighting with his sword. 
it's just complete nonsense. And there's a st the, the stories, uh, the, the huge um, number of stories of um, from 1944 of large massacres of Japanese uh, troops. These weren't Japanese troops attacking in a Banzai fashion. We've got the sort of comic book idea that the Japanese sort of lined up and they just attacked en masse because that's how they did it. No, even when they attacked in a subtle way, in bounds with, um, you know, a platoon will attack with one section up and two sections behind with machine gun fire covering the advance. They would all they would do all that. They did that very, very well. But they still did it repeatedly, uh, despite the fact that they were being defeated on the ground. Japanese stall, uh, officers still fighting with swords. And effectively, um, you get to a point in many of these attacks where the Japanese soldiers just didn't, couldn't stop. They just kept on going. And, and whether that was because they wanted now to basically commit harikari in, in, in the face of British and Indian bullets, or because they were being encouraged to just to go and die because that's what the emperor wanted them, is, is, is unclear in most cases. Although there's lots of really good evidence from commands that Japanese officers gave to their soldiers that their time was now to die. And, and there's one very famous um, case of General Tanaka and, and Arakan are ordering his soldiers to die, and when they die, to continue the fight as their souls waft in the breeze, or words to that effect. You know, they were to fight even when they were dead. Well, it's just pure nonsense, of course. And I sort of came to the conclusion a number of years ago that Japanese soldiers often just died because of the incompetence of their commanders, and I, I haven't moved from that view. Um, if Japanese commanders were any better than they were, they would have uh, fought in a much more sophisticated way. And, you know, people like Motoguchi Renya, quite a remarkable man in many respects, had a plan for his invasion of India. He stuck to it despite all uh, all going awry around him. And, he was um, the Japanese commander. Yes, he commanded the 15th Army uh, that invaded India in 1944. Uh, very, um, very driven man. Uh, he was hated by his subordinate divisional commanders. General Sato and Yamauchi and Nagida, who all hated him, um, uh, but they all hated each other. I mean, command Japanese command was a a mess. It's an embarrassment actually, in in India and Burma, nineteen forty four and forty five, and it was their own fault. They they didn't they didn't have strong command structures, and and that's largely because they didn't have strong political control of the military. People weren't sacked. Basically, the generals were in charge of events and affairs back in Japan, and there were at least two very significant um, military tribes all vying with each other for, uh, well, army tribes, because the, the Navy was quite different. And, um, and and as a consequence, you have sometimes very good generals doing, you know, some bizarre things, and, but more often than not, bad generals um, fighting and, and just sacrificing the lives of the troops to, to, to no avail. You know, there were some remarkable Japanese generals. General Yamashita, who um, um, secured Malaya and Singapore in 1942, was quite a remarkable man and quite a remarkable general. Um, but you know, he was he had he was of the wrong political stamp and actually played a a pretty low key for much of the rest of the war. He's called back and uh, ended up defending Philippines in 1944, 45, and um, and was ultimately executed for war crimes, which he, he would have known about. Um, but a lot of the other generals were just not good enough. I mean, I'll give you one example. 
uh, as an example I talk about quite regularly, and I, I explained it in the book, uh, when Mutaguchi drew up his plans to invade India, he was given very strict instructions that he was to go no further than um, Manipur. Kahima was, the, was a, a Naga village that sat on the road between Imphal and Dimapur in the Brahmaputra Valley, and that was to be seized as part of the invasion. But effectively, the invasion of India was to ensure that the Allies couldn't use Imphal or Manipur as a base to attack Burma in due course. But Mutaguchi, when he looked at the map and looked at the situation, he was a smart guy. He, he said to himself, actually, the most important strategic objective here is not Imphal, nor is it Kahima, it's Dimapur. If I can get to Dimapur, I will be able to throttle the snake. And that snake, of course, was, uh, was feeding Lido, which is where the Americans were um, basing their hub airlift into China. And at a stroke, it would mean that the Allies could never reinvade Burma. It would stop the, probably stop the hump airlift into uh, China, and it would threaten the Raj. Here we, we, we might even have Japanese troops in Bengal. I mean, what an extraordinary opportunity. Um, but that was denied to him by his superior officer in, um, in Burma. When the operation was launched, he tried to um, get his one of his divisional commanders, General Sato, the 31st Division of Kima, to continue on into Dimapur by sending at least a, a battalion down a place called the Bokhajan Tract to the Brahmaputra Valley. Um, Sato knew that he would do this. Sato hated Mutikuchi with a passion. Sato, too, was blind to the strategic opportunity presented by Dimapur, and he decided that he would stay at Kahima. He would... Um, uh, get Mutaguchi into trouble because when Mutaguchi privately told him to continue to send troops down to Dimapur, he sent a very public uh, uh, telegram back to Mutaguchi, copied to everyone, uh, including uh, right at the Japanese chain of command. So Mutaguchi was told in no uncertain terms to get back in his box. But Mutaguchi was right. Mutaguchi was right. Dimapur was the strategically sensible objective, and Sato was wrong. Sato was an intelligent man, but he was a bit of a bullheaded commander and he hated Mutaguchi, so he's going to do whatever he could to bring Mutaguchi down. And actually, as a result of that, he took his division to defeat at Kahima, massive defeat. Most of them were, 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 you know, were, were sacrificed on the altar of his own hubris, his own arrogance, and his own unthinking uh, view of the strategic opportunities available to the Japanese. And this is the thing that sort of strikes me about the Japanese um, right across the, the Pacific and the, the Far East campaign. They, they didn't really have any strategic vision. They ended up just fighting because that's what they could do. They were fighters and they would fight till they died and they, they seemed to think there was some glory in it. So there really was a very significant clash of cultures here. Um, and every time I come back to this question, I, I, I have to go back to the reality that Japan was intrinsically, deeply, systemically militaristic, and it had been since the restoration of the Meiji um, uh, dynasty in the 1860s, 1867. And, and that, you know, that coloring of Japanese culture, that conception of Japanese self was really, really important. You know, why did Japanese treat captured prisoners of war in the way they did? How did, why did the Japanese treat 
civilians in the countries they um, they overran, despite claiming that this was going to be an Asian for the Asians, and despite quite a large number of um, these people supporting them, why did they treat them so badly? It's because they had a very exceptional view of, of themselves, a martial view, very ethnically focused and racist view. And, and that was their undoing. They, you know, the, the Japanese failed to create a greater Southeast Asia co-prosperity sphere because they did it in a top-down way. They enforced it. And, uh, and everyone who, you know, their view was that to be successful in this co-prosperity sphere, you needed to be effectively Japanese. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the fact of the matter is. Uh, the other reason I wanted to do this is because, and I mentioned this sort of Eurocentricity of our views of the war. Uh, America, if you go to America and you're, you're a student of war and you're looking at the Japanese, your focus is naturally drawn to the Pacific campaign. And yet um, it's, it's very, very clear that although people think that the Far Eastern campaign was a British campaign, it wasn't. It's a very important campaign to consider nevertheless, because the war was global. We have talked about the grand strategic imperative of keeping China in the war. And to be able to consider the Second World War without considering the Far East, without considering what we call the Burma campaign, the Far East theater was effectively the Burma campaign leaves a, a really, really very significant gap in our understanding of the war. And, um, and, and of course, in studying it, we realize just how important India was to this whole story. And without India, the Japanese could not have been defeated. Well, uh, we're running out of time. Um, but it, I mean, it's a very important story and, and, and it's been brilliantly told. Um, I, I just wanted to finish with, with one last question, really. Um, and this is, um, this is really the, the, the British commander who, who, who took us through, who took the British and Indian armies through to, to victory in 1945 was Bill Slim. You've, you've mentioned him before. Um, but, and, and he's obviously one of, one of only three, um, World War II generals who are on Whitehall. He's he's a big name, but probably not as well known as 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 he should be. Um, why was he? Why and I know you've argued that he's the um, well the greatest British the greatest general you know. yeah ever, um, yeah. including uh, Wellington and, and Marlborough in that. Um, why is that then? Why why is he? Why is he? Why is he uh, so good in comparison to his uh, counterparts in, in uh, fighting in Europe? And, and why is he the best ever? Okay, well, very good. I, 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 and that's a big question, I know. No, no, I'll, I'll try to be as, as brief as I can, but I'll, I'll start by answering a slightly different question, which is say, why has he been forgotten? Well, of course, he was, although he was commissioned as the Warwickshire Regiment in, um, the, at the start of the First World War, he then transferred in 1919 via a circuitous route to the Indian Army. So he was an Indian Army officer. So the first thing is that he wasn't known to the British public. He didn't fight uh, in Europe during the Second World War. He wasn't in the press. People didn't know who he was. Um, and, the, you know, the, the 14th Army was largely forgotten. It was largely forgotten at the time in 1944-45 in Europe when, the, you know, frankly, the, the key job was to defeat the Germans. So he was the army, forgotten general of this forgotten army. Why was he so good? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm very firmly the view that without Bill Slim, the, we, the allies, would not have won the Far East. We, 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 we just wouldn't have had the intellectual 
uh, horsepower and military horsepower to do what was needed. He was able to galvanize all the things that were necessary to, to create a new 14th Army and to take it to success in 44 and 45. And that's very, very clear. He did it by uh, largely, I mean, I would suggest by serendipity. Not only was he a great general, but actually he wasn't bothered by anyone. People weren't there breathing down his neck as people were breathing down Monty's neck in, in North Africa and Italy, oh, yes, and in, in uh, Northwest Europe. Um, he really had a, a free hand. Uh, it wasn't entirely free because although until 1944, his the commander, his direct commander was George Gifford and then became Oliver Leese. The, the real plans for the defeat of the Japanese and the in India, and then the reconquest in 1945 were Slim's uh, plans and they were successfully adopted. Um, there were a number of things that got in the way of this, this um, finely organized uh, machine, not least of all the Chindits, which took fantastically useful resources away from Slim in the early 1944 that he couldn't use to fight the Japanese in, in India. But that's, that was a minor issue. Slim was able to understand what motivated soldiers. He understood what motivated Indian and African soldiers. I mean, just mustn't forget the, Africa, the Africans involved, involved in Allied Land Forces Southeast Asia. Uh, in 1945, there were 100,000 Britons in Allied Land Forces Southeast Asia. There were 90,000 Africans. So basically the same number. And there's, again, this Eurocentric view about the Far East. Um, Slim was the right man for the job. He, it was largely serendipity that he was there, that he survived, um, but he was able to work through a program, an intellectual program, a spiritual program, a material program for defeating the Japanese. And he had time in 1943 to sit down and say, okay, what do we need to do? How do we do it? And he, he it did the basics right. He realized that in order to fight the Japanese, a soldier needed to be trained need to be rested regularly, need to be given the right food and right equipment, led properly. None of this is rocket science, but actually the great man theory that I've described earlier sometimes gets in the way of just doing the basics properly and, and relying on logistics and organization and administration as the bedrock of your success. Slim understood that perfectly. He built a really good team around him who stayed with him for most of the war and uh, reaped the benefits and success in 1945. Stem was also able to fight a really good defensive battle in Imphal and Kahima in 1944, and then fight a fabulously exciting and dramatic offensive battle in Burma that completely discombobulated the Japanese. He ran rings around the Japanese. There's 350,000 Japanese in Burma, 1945. They didn't know what hit them. And you know, he, was, he was very, very good at the psychological dimension of warfare, understanding, trying to get in the mind of General Kimura, his adversary in 1945, and do what Kimura didn't expect. And he did that spectacularly. So he was, yes, he was a lucky general, but he was a, he was a good man and he had the right ideas and the men loved him. I mean, that's one of the most remarkable things. Very, very, I was a soldier for 20 years. You don't really love your generals. I mean, you put up with them. Well, Slim was a very different character. I haven't come across anyone who didn't um, like and respect and want to talk to him. And there's some really, really good examples. I put them in the book. Uh, this, the book's divided into four parts. The start of the third part, I use the memoirs of a young Gurkhartz called John Twells who described meeting Slim. Uh, you just need to read that to realize what a great man Slim was. Slim brought these young um, Indian soldiers 
from the Madras Regiment, the, the Divisional um, Infantry Regiment at the time, Defence Battalion, into his confidence, told them the Japanese were going to launch an attack in a few months' time across the Chinwen and told them what would happen. And lo and behold, it came to pass. And that's quite remarkable. And the, the, the soldiers believed him. George MacDonald Fraser said something along the lines of, I interviewed him many years ago, he said something along the lines of, whenever, whatever Bill Slim said would happen, happened, and we believed him because of it. Well, that's a, that's a mark of a great general, just being able to talk to soldiers and bring them into your confidence. And, and he, was, he, was a, he was excellent at doing that. He did it without any guile or subterfuge or nonsense. You know, he, he had a very open personality. He wasn't your mate, but you know, he accepted people for who they were. Very unusual man, very, very successful man, one of Britain's I would argue Britain's greatest general. Uh, so there we are. Well, I'm not going to argue uh, with you there, uh, Robert. Right. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. We're out of time. Um, it's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed hearing all about this. It's, just, it's a very important book because, as you've described the Indian Army, um, this isn't something that's known about uh, either here or, or maybe not even in India either. So um, a very important story uh, to be told. Uh, and you've got a, a great piece for us in next month's uh, issue of Aspects of History. So um, readers are very lucky there. But uh, I'm, I'm just going to end it by thanking you, Robert. It was so interesting. And uh, good luck with the book. Thank you very much, Ollie. It has been really good chatting this through this afternoon with you. I wish everyone the best and I hope you enjoy the book. Well, now you can claim knowledge on the Forgotten Campaign in the Far East during the Second World War. Next up on the Aspects of History podcast is Anne O'Brien. The Sunday Times best-selling author discusses the Wars of the Roses, the women of the period, and historical fiction itself. Is it an important literary genre that introduces people to history, or is it just making stuff up? I'm going to give you a spoiler, it's not the latter. Thank you, and good night.